Steve Addison here for the Movements Podcast. Podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we'll hear from Nathan Shank, movement pioneer in South Asia. He faces a mission field of 480 million people. Grab your Bible and listen in as Nathan opens up the scriptures to cast vision for no place left. Hey guys, look at uh, you got your Bibles with you, right? Look at uh, look at Acts chapter twenty. Look at that for just a minute. Is that right? Acts chapter twenty. Now you know how uh, how chapter nineteen ends. Paul has been in Ephesus. Uh, chapter twenty later, it actually tells us he's been there for three years, right? He's written the Corinthian correspondence from Ephesus. He's told him to get the offering ready or they are preparing an offering as he's about to come visit them in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he actually leaves Ephesus, right? After the riot concerning Artemis of the Ephesians. You remember that story in chapter 19? And then chapter 20, verse 1, then starts with these words. It says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. It says he traveled through that area, Macedonia, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. And finally, he arrived in Greece. Now, he's traveling through Macedonia. And in the midst of that, he writes Second Corinthians from Macedonia, get the offering ready, I'm coming. Makes no mention of that here in Acts. But it does mention Greece here. First time it's called Greece, usually it's Achaia, across Luke's uh, account in the book of Acts, but verse number three is very interesting. He finally arrived in Greece, where, verse three, he stayed for three months. Do you see that? Where he stayed for three months. If you're the kind who marks in your Bible, and underline three months right there, and I'm going to tell you why, because this little moment, this little blip in the timeline of the book of Acts, every time I read it, it's like, uh, it's the chills. I get the, the goosebumps on my arm concerning these three months. And I wonder if you guys have any idea why those three months are significant. What happens during those three months? Any ideas? It's okay if we don't. Look over at Romans 16. I was going to say, is that huh? where... I might be cheating a little bit. Um... Is that where potentially? Is that where potentially think he might have written Romans? Uh, potentially, yeah, I would make the case strongly. Yeah, you got it, Brian. That's those three months are the venue. That's the spot in the timeline. The end of the third missionary journey. He's about to turn his face toward Jerusalem with the offering in hand from the Achaeans, from the Macedonians. And in those three months, I want to suggest to you, he writes the book of Romans right there. Mm-hmm. To me, that's just phenomenal because we have a we have a context for the things he writes concerning his his role, his assignment, the nature of his task. Everything recorded in Romans can be plugged into his timeline right there. So look over at Romans 16 for a second. And you see in verse 22, 23 of Romans 16, there it mentions Tertius, Gaius, uh, whose hospitality I am here and the whole church here enjoy. And then Erastus, uh, yeah, brothers uh, studying biblical archaeology are going to put Erastus as the director of public works in Corinth. 
actually recorded on some stones that have been unearthed there. Pretty clearly, Erastus, uh, the director of public works in the city of Corinth. First clue there for us of the origin of this letter, Romans, where he wrote it. For that matter, you could back up to chapter 16, verse 1. You see there he commends to the church in Rome, he commends Sister Phoebe, a deacon is of the church in Sincrea. Sincrea, of course, is a day's walk from Corinth down on the coast, the port city. Another church, obviously, that had begun there. Uh, so again, you have that, that same region mentioned. And then in chapter 15, we're actually back into the timeline with verse 25 and following. Uh, some more evidence that this was written, the Romans letter was written from Corinth. You see what he says. Now, however, 1525, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. You see that? Mm -hmm. So the circumstances that led Paul to Achaia, across Macedonia and Achaia, that are not mentioned to us in Acts, but that are described in detail in First and Second Corinthians, particularly Second Corinthians nine, actually frame the discussion, or I should say, the finish line for Paul here in Romans fifteen, verse twenty-five and twenty-six. Pretty clearly, the instructions to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians eight and nine, had been fulfilled. The Corinthians had been faithful, proven themselves that they'd avoided the embarrassment in front of the Philippians and even Paul's co-workers. And with the offering in hand, that, that service that they had begun, that they brought to fulfillment, with the offering in hand, now Paul had, writes Romans and turns his face like flint, if you will, toward Jerusalem. And we have all the, the, the remaining of chapter 20, the book of Acts, uh, the different ways he's encouraged not to go up to Jerusalem, even even to the point of prophets Agabus coming, taking off his belt, binding him in this way, you'll be bound. All those uh, discouragements, even from the Lord, the words of prophecy that he would be persecuted there in Rome or in Jerusalem. And yet, with that offering in hand, he has set his course. Right from this moment, the terminus, if you will, the terminal point of the third missionary journey. He's going to turn his face toward Jerusalem, and he's going to march there knowing persecution is coming. And where is that turning point? In the narrative of Acts, it's Acts chapter 20, verse number 3. He spent three months in Corinth, in Achaia. In my mind, it's in those moments he's pinning the book of Romans. Now, why does that matter, right? What's the big deal about that? What The context in Romans is what uh, really offers you the goosebumps, right? Really really messes with your paradigm. Because in verse number 23, we have these words. Romans 15, 23. Now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so, that is the Romans, I plan to visit you when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through to have you assist me on my journey there. So that is, to me, astonishing. Again, if you mark in your Bible, the, in verse 23, underline no more place, if you will, no place left for me to work in these regions. That's astonishing 
in part because of the scope of Paul's task. And for that matter, his undertaking across the book of Acts, within three missionary journeys, he's traveled into multiple Roman provinces, Cilicia, his home area, Syria, also there around Antioch, but also Galatia, Pamphylia, Phrygia, Macedonia, Achaia, Asia, these different provincial settings that he's gone about ministering. And with a population in the first century, at the dawn of the second century, the 100 AD Roman population is as high as 60 million in the Roman Empire. Now, that expands far beyond the stretch of Paul's ministry at this point. It includes the Gauls, even uh, the Spain, North Africa, places clearly Paul had not visited. But it's clear to it's clear to us looking at that Roman history that the densest population of the Roman Empire was between Jerusalem and Rome on the northern coast of the Mediterranean. That's those same same provinces that Paul has gone about ministering. So, if you will, perhaps as much as thirty percent, forty percent of the Roman Empire population living within these areas that Paul has been working. If there's sixty million in the empire. Maybe perhaps as much as 20 million living along the coast, the northern Mediterranean coast between Jerusalem and Rome, and across a 12 to 15 year time span between Acts 13 and here Acts chapter 20, the venue for the writing of the book of Romans, how is it that Paul could say and suggest to us that there's no place left for him to work in those regions? That'll just blow your mind. Right? 1,500 kilometers of geography, multiple Roman provinces, a number of different languages there, different peoples that have been conquered by the, first of all, Hellenized and then the Roman Empire, the centers of pagan philosophy, uh, the major uh, economic centers along the coast there for trade and other things, and within 12 years and 20 million people. Paul could actually write the Romans and with integrity say there's no place left for me to work in these regions. That is, that's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing that the same Paul who told us in 1 Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, that the Holy Spirit would inspire him to write these words to us. And for me, it's, it just it fills my heart with hope, you know, that the task he's laid before me, it seems so immense. It seems so overwhelming. In fact, the population we're trying to engage is all the time multiplying biologically. And it seems as if we constantly, perhaps even with, with traditional methods and models and certainly with my giftings and skill sets as the plan, uh, we're constantly losing ground on population. But something's taken place in Paul's ministry by which, with integrity, he has fulfilled the purposes God had for him in that assignment. The Pauline role was accomplished. So here's the question for our study. And this is where it really gets interesting. If Paul could look around in this context, Romans 15, and in the context of the timeline, Acts chapter 20, If he could look around at what God was showing him at the end of that third missionary journey and be convinced his job was done, is it possible for us to discern what had been accomplished? 
Are you with me? If we could discern what Paul had, what God, the Holy Spirit, had accomplished through Paul in the fulfillment of his role, the Pauline task, so that there was no place left, then I think we would have discovered our key result areas, wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we knew what God used to show Paul, convince him that he was done, if we can discern those from the Word, then we've discerned our key result areas. We've discerned, as we also pursue the apostolic role, we've discerned our finish line. Mm -hmm. We've discerned, discerned our key result areas, or at least a roadmap of key agenda items we ought to be pursuing. Is that fair, guys? What do you think, Brian? Jonathan? That makes sense? So this then becomes an invitation in the study. Really, the whole point of a no-place-left vision, or the vision casting for the Pauline role, is really an invitation into the book of Acts and the epistles as the highly directive instruction that fulfill and, and put color into the timeline of the book of Acts. It's an invitation to study that as our playbook, as the, not just the, the daily use of our time, but for, in this case, our finish line for the Pauline role and task, right? If we are to follow his example, as he follows the example of Christ. So my question would be, what in the context of Romans 15 and Acts chapter 20, what elements, what things, what signposts can we discover or discern that convinced Paul his job was done, right? And there's several, even uh, here, right here in the context in chapter 15. Let me let me back up in chapter 15 and read you a few verses. Uh, verse 17 and following. You with me, guys? Yep. Mm -hmm. Romans 15, verse 17 and following. It says, Therefore, I glory in Christ. In Christ Jesus, in my service to God, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Your, your translation might, be, might say they have obeyed God in word and deed, right? So that by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. You know these next verses very well. It's always been in my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, rather as it is written, those who were told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That's why I've often been hindered from coming to you, but now that there is no place left for me to work in these regions, I plan to visit you, right? So what things in those verses, verse 17 through verse 23, what things do you guys see as markers or by the power of the Spirit, things that had been accomplished in Paul's ministry? What do you see there? Well, this is a big gun for me. So uh, I'm going to state the obvious. It was all about Christ all about Jesus and if we miss that then we miss everything so that's right Paul's intention that he would not venture to speak of anything except what Christ had accomplished right now he mentions that's through me in leading the Gentiles 
But he, in the very next verse, he comes back to that by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. Now twice he's given credit to the Trinity as the agent, right? It's really the work of Christ, the work of the power of the Spirit of God in him, through him, accomplishing the task, right? So we go nowhere without the Spirit. Now, that's uh, all the way back to our introduction of kingdom principles, maybe through the parables in Mark 4 or Matthew 13. And trying to... uh, Trying to accomplish the work God has given us to do, you'd be better off planning a trip to the moon without a rocket than going about the work we have been called to without the Spirit of God, right? He, uh, he's the everything of our planning. He's the, the fuel, the rocket itself by which we move, right? So Paul twice, he makes prayer, just like you said, Chuck. Thank you. Any other signs you see there? Things that had been accomplished, things that God had done through Paul, that convinced him his job was done. Verse 18, 19. Uh, The Gentiles were obedient. Yep. Okay. So I'm reading from the NIV. Someone else has another translation there? Verse 18. Everybody using NIV, or is there another translation here? NASB here, the Gentiles by resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit. So resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles in word and deed. Is that what I heard? Mm -hmm. The end of verse 18? See, in NIV, it's got leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, that being Paul. And guys, uh, the actual Greek is ambiguous there. Was it Paul's word and deed by what he had said and done? Read his teaching and his example, his way of life, right? Or was it the Gentiles responding with a demonstration of their own word, their own speech and action, right? By what they have said and done, word and deed. The scripture, the Greek is ambiguous. And the point, that's actually a valuable teaching point, because whatever Paul had taught and modeled, evidently they had demonstrated obedience. They had also picked it up, and it had affected their speech and their action, right? So what better definition of disciple-making is there than that my disciples have demonstrated obedience in speech and in action, in word and in deed? That's beautiful. So discipleship was clearly up and running, and was healthy, right? Demonstrated obedience among the Gentiles. Okay, what else do you see? Anything? Verse 19, maybe? From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum? What's he say next? I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. You might have, I have fulfilled the gospel ministry. NASV, what do you got, Chuck? Uh, fully preach the gospel of Christ. Fully preach the gospel of Christ. Any difference? Okay. Now, again here, I want to read it just like it says. That he had proclaimed the gospel. Does that mean 20 million people had heard the gospel? Not likely. If that was the population along the northern coast, probably not, right? But 
every province where he had entered, if you will, all those Roman provinces, first Galatia, then Macedonia through the, through the Thessalonians, then in Corinth, as he talks about the, even in first Corinthians, as he greets them, how the gospel is progressing and gain, gaining ground through them. Uh, in Asia, chapter, is it chapter 19 of the book of Acts, chapter when he actually talks about the three, the two years in the lecture hall, and so that the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. There's these ringing events from the centers of these provinces by which Paul can say the gospel has gained ground and been proclaimed everywhere. And has everyone heard and had a chance to respond? Probably not at this point. But Paul obviously had, had a clear conscience when it came to the fact that the gospel was ringing out across these provinces and that the gospel had, that had been presented was presented in its fullness. Right? Death, burial, resurrection. Also, faith, repentance, and lordship is right response. Acts chapter 20, verse 21, right? So we've got gospel, we've got disciple-making, discipleship. Even the fact all the way from Jerusalem around to Illyricum, right? A lot of guys really struggle with what was Paul's target in his journeys. Was he targeting epicenters of economy, you know, through these mega cities, if you will, of the first century, or did he have a people group focus or not? What's the evidence that he was engaging different peoples and the Roman Empire? Man, people write dissertations on that all the time. He's trying to identify his target. What we can be sure, at least the Holy Spirit inspiring it in Luke's heart, there was a, there was a clear intentional recording of the provincial ministries of Paul. It mattered to Luke and therefore to the Holy Spirit that Galatia had been engaged and was revisited multiple times. That in the Macedonian call, the Macedonian province, again, multiple churches started by Paul, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, but also the ringing events so that the, the love and faith of the Thessalonians was heard throughout Macedonia and even into Achaia, right? The same in Asia with the lecture hall so that the whole province heard the word of the Lord. It's clear that Luke cared about the provincial targets. It mattered to him that there were, there were church planting and, if you will, reproduction of that DNA that was ringing out across those provinces. And, and so I think I'd even want to say right there from Jerusalem all the way around the Illyricum, the targets had been engaged. The fires had been lit, you know. In which case, I want to suggest it mattered to Paul, even in the next verses, as he talks about chapter 15, verse 21 and following, he cared. It was his ambition to preach the gospel where it had not been named, where Christ had not been named, so as not to lay on someone else's foundation. He cared about engaging empty fields. And through this provincial progression, Acts 13 through 20, he has a clear conscience believing that he has, a, he has engaged the fields the Lord laid up in front of him. Right now, that took place again through the power of the Spirit, didn't it? The Macedonian calls and Corinthian pauses, all these things taking place so that under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the direction of the Holy Spirit, he had engaged the fields, the empty fields the Lord had put in front of him. Now, it's getting interesting, guys, and you can see already where I'm going with this. What had been accomplished? Entry had been accomplished, fires had been lit, the gospel fully proclaimed. Discipleship was up and running in a healthy reproduction. How do we know? The Gentiles have demonstrated obedience in word and deed. Uh, you with me? Uh -huh. Now we're three-fifths of the way toward a no-place-less strategy, 
right here. <laughs> what were the signposts that convinced him the job was done? Entry mattered. Jerusalem to Illyricum. Gospel mattered. Fully proclaimed. Discipleship mattered. Demonstration of obedience in word and deed, right? Flip back over to chapter 20 of Acts, right? If Romans 15 is our context, it's directly connected to Acts chapter 20, correct? As we demonstrated earlier? Yeah. Okay. What evidence do we have there that his job was done? This is... To me, this is so fun, man. This is this is the lifetime study for us, right? An invitation into that study. You know what's true about Acts chapter 20? The, the, the end of that third missionary journey? Every church credited to Paul as the church planter, every church credited to Paul in the New Testament has been established by this point in the Acts timeline. Mm-hmm. You think about it. There's some there's some funny business that goes on in Crete later, right? That he writes even from uh, in the, the mystery journey after the Roman imprisonment to Titus about churches and the need for elders in all the towns. Some stuff happens there, but every church credited to Paul that's named in the New Testament has been formed by Acts chapter 20. You realize that? Mm-hmm. You think about Iconium, Lystra, Derby, the Galatians, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, the Macedonians, Corinth. Here in Romans 16, Sacria even. And then there in Ephesus, right? Now, what happens later with Laodicea and the household of Nympha and all those things that he writes in Ephesians, those aren't credited to Paul. Remember, the Colossians, that was Epaphras, right? Every church credited to Paul has been established, has been formed by this point. In which case, church formation has taken place. Even in this chapter 20, he's going to go back to the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and he's going to give them that last charge, declaring, you will never see me again. Right? Church formation mattered, didn't it? Mm-hmm. How could he leave disciples behind if he hadn't put in order what was established, right? Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, someone else is building on that foundation, but the foundation is intact. And then chapter 20, verse 4 and 5. Look what it says right there. At this point in the timeline, he was accompanied by Sophater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea. Where's Berea? Just south of That's second missionary journey, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Macedonia, right? So Sophater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea in Macedonia. Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Now, that's Macedonia also. So there's three brothers with him from Macedonia. You see that? Mm-hmm. Look what it says next. Gaius from Derby. Now, not to be confused with Romans 16, Gaius from Corinth. This is Gaius from Derby. And Derby is Galatia, right? Iconium, Lystra, Derby. You remember that? First missionary journey. Timothy also. And where's Timothy from? The beginning of the second missionary journey from Lystra. A young man, a Galatian. So there's three Macedonians. So Peter, Aristarchus, and Secundus, now we got two Galatians with him, Gaius and Timothy. And then next it says also Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. So there's two Asians with him. That's around Ephesus, right? Third missionary journey. So he's got, if you will, he's got a team of three Macedonians. He's got a team of two Galatians. He's got a, a team of co-workers, two Asians with him 
in Achaia. You see that? Mm -hmm. And then if you look in verse 5, these men went on ahead and waited for us. So there's one of you Luke in the counts, right? Mm -hmm. Luke is also there. There's the us plural pronoun where he reenters the timeline. So Luke is also there with him. Now, the point being, he has teams of provincial cross-pollinated leadership from all of the provinces that Luke has meticulously recorded for us throughout the book of Acts. Galatia, Macedonia, Asia, with him in Achaia. And the Roman 16 list of co-workers and other things from Achaia is also extensive. This is the broadest set of co-workers at any point in Paul's missionary journeys. The brothers listed here plus the Achaeans listed in Romans 16. I'm convinced this is a significant piece of Paul's exit strategy. What convinced him that his job was done, that there was no place left for him, and he had teams of cross-pollinated co-workers that were looking into each other as peers from every province the Holy Spirit had opened doors, every province where he'd established churches, every province where the gospel was ringing out and disciples had been made, churches formed, and now leaders teamed and cross-pollinated. And when he looks around at that reality, the Holy Spirit inspires him that the fields had been engaged, gospel fully proclaimed, disciples made, demonstrating obedience and word and deed, churches formed, and leadership multiplied and cross-pollinated, there's no place left for me to work in these regions. Mm. Now that, that inspires hope in my heart. Yeah. That inspires even a timeline in my heart that, Lord, could we trust you to work the same way today as you did in the first century northern Mediterranean fields that you assigned a point? If the Holy Spirit were, is the same today, yesterday, and forever, if he's willing to work through his sent ones and his church today the way he did then, there's hope that the assignments he's laid on our heart, that the Pauline task of laying the foundation where it has not been laid could be accomplished in our generation. In a time frame of 12 to 15 years, that a population, as much as 20 million people, that Paul could leave behind the Ephesian elders, you'll never see me again, and with a clear conscience, look toward another field, toward a Spain at the ends of the earth in his perspective, and trust God to carry on what had been established, to carry on to even others in the church to build on the foundations that have been laid. Guys, my goodness, a generation that would rise up and believe God for those kind of, those kind of goals, those kind of key results there. Yeah. To me, that's, that's what the No Place Left vision is all about. Can we trust him for the assignment he's given that in our generation, with a clear conscience, we could finish the apostolic, the Pauline task of laying the foundation? I hope you enjoyed that podcast. If you did, here's what I suggest you do. Grab some co-workers and sit down and listen to it again. Then talk together and pray together what does no place left look like for you? Then take Nathan's Bible study and make it your own. Use it to cast vision for no place left. Until next time, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.